I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where us, two best friends named Claire and Ashley, in case you forgot, are reading celebrity memoirs so that literally no one else has to. And here's the thing. I'm going to blow that roof right off this house and let you guys know we're kind of bitches. A little bit bitches who love raising the roof. (laughs) The thing about me is I actually studied the written word in college and I learned about a little something called an unreliable narrator. So we are going to read these memoirs. We are going to summarize these memoirs. We are going to dissect and analyze these memoirs. And sometimes we are going to question the very truths they hide. And if that is going to make you mad, I suggest you try a different podcast. A funny thing about memoirs, sometimes the best thing that they write is not even what they wrote. It's between the lines. And that's what we're reading. Between the lines, between the covers of a book, it's time to look between the lines. That's what this podcast is about. And I'm excited for you guys to join us on this journey. Our partners on this track of ours are co-pilots in the sky of love and light. Are our five-star reviewers, the angels that guide us. And so to them, we say thank you. This week's five-star reviewers are Hannah Baggins, a big bag of hugs for you. Sea Breeze 311, my favorite band. Amber is the color of your energy, my friend. Shiny Con, you're sparkly as hell. Ireland is my name. And writing a review that makes my day is your game. L-E-M-C-E. Oh my God, she's a friend of ours. She's done the Patreon. Please listen to that episode. Erica0522. That is actually two of my close friends. Three of my close friends is birthdays. So you are blessed. Kirk Eddie. It's like comedy, but Kirk. Paul Varjak, a jack of all trades. I'm not sure, but a master of writing great reviews. AML222. Angel number. Love it. Fran Deman42. You're my man. Julia Louise. Oh, that's probably Julia Louise Olsen. Oh, we love Julia. Louise Olsen. Unless it was Julia Louis Dreyfus, in which case, hello to any and all Julia Louises. SFHB35, make it 36. You're the best. Law Krieg, please be my lawyer. Tuning in from your All America, baby, it's a football star. Avocado, I'll take that on toast. Iron Fist, thank you for keeping us in line and ruling us fairly. Mila K, 1997. Mila Kunis, perhaps? The Real Buzz Killington. Oh my God, I never would have doubted you for a second. Izzy, 97. Another fun year. Style Haley. Style me. I don't know how to dress myself. Pauline, 2238. Thank you so much. Ains Lovely. Ains, you lovely. The Grady Gang, give you a grade A. Meg 0708111, thank you so much. Shay Baby 13, baby, you're the best. Lucky number 13, ML Norris. Thanks, Nor. Review 123XOXO, XO to you too. Just kidding, 657. Um, I hope you're not kidding about these five stars because we really appreciated them. Head of Lettuce, 777. Thanks for keeping it healthy. Ed WLFO. I'm a big fan of LFO myself. Glittery Echo. Thanks for adding some friggin' sparkle. A Pity 24. Not a pity that you left this five star review. Clara Ecky. Thanks for the echo. Rhiannon Alexandria. Thanks for the review. Annie094. Oh, thank you so much. 
UAT97. A lot of 97s in this batch, huh? Is it lucky? Lero89. Uh, rock and roll. Leanne44. Also a lucky number. SJBFUWBDBFL. I'm going to tell my kids that's the alphabet. Kelsey DTX. Howdy from Texas. Cameron Jean. You know how much I love denim. LPALAC. I won number one in my heart, Alyssa 909090. That sounds like a Mayday call, but I know that you're just giving us five stars. Ashley Moe, thank you for most stars. Joey AAJ, thank you. J21094. That also sounds like a Mayday call, but thank you. <laughs> Grizz Ace, thanks for acing this assignment. Andrea Marie 937. Thank you. Voldemort Granger. Sorry, I know I wasn't supposed to say his name. Alex K88. K, thank you. Jimmy Alishba.pdf. Thank you for saving that in a usable format. Rhinestone Cowboy. God, even more sparkle. I'm freaking loving this. The Foods one. Thanks for feeding us with this review. Miss MMW, thank you for joining the Worm Club. Thank you guys so much. And thank you to the people in other countries who have left reviews. If you want to send us a screenshot of your country's reviews, we will read those as well because our phones only show us US. I know someone from Sweden sent some reviews and I did lose the photo that I saved. So if you could resend, I'm sorry for giving you homework, but I love you so much. Oh my God. And can I say another thing that's not necessarily content, but is earnest and trigger warning, earnestness coming ahead. Uh Oh, I'm ducking and covering. (laughs) This is our one year anniversary. Happy anniversary, my friend. I would like to thank first and foremost, celebrities for loving themselves so much that often they are called to write not just one, but two, three, four, five, six memoirs looking at you, Tori Spelling. I'd like to thank the dying publishing industry for lowering their standards to let literally anybody become an author. Truly, the New York Times bestseller list, that is about as meaningful as President of the United States. You know what I mean? (laughs) Truly something that meant something once to my grandma. Maybe meaningless now. I want to thank my beautiful co-host, Ashley. You make me laugh every goddamn day. And even when we're screaming at each other about silly little things, I know within hours we'll be making up again. Sometimes even minutes. Boy, oh boy, do we have mood disorders. I got codependent <laughs> relationship. One good thing about this toxic working situation is that we have no exit strategy. <laughs> so we always make it work. We are tumbling from a plane together and the parachute got lost. Claire said she was bringing it. She thought I was bringing it. Now we're just spinning out and here we lie. <laughs> but most importantly, to the squirmy wormies, you guys, me and Ashley have just been, you know, hacking at it for years <laughs> now. And Celebrity Memoir Book Club has been such a fun experience. I'm so glad that you guys like it. Every DM, every tweet, every review, they truly keep us afloat. I'm just so happy to be a part of your day that might make you smile. Oh God, I hate myself. I have to shut the fuck up. You go, Ashley. I liked that sentiment and I agree with it. I love every single message, every single worm that listens. You guys truly have created a world in which Claire and I fight less. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. And you guys are so funny. I love all the DMs. You guys have a lot of great insight. Truly genius insights. And it's just been so fun. And so a rare, horrific, truly physically painful for me moment of 
vulnerability and honesty. I would like to say thank you guys for listening. This has been a really good year. I like to imagine us all getting dressed up in our fancy anniversary best and having a beautiful dinner together tonight. On the Patreon this week, we will be doing a meta memoir recap anthology situation where we, looking back at all of the 50,000 memoirs we've read, we're going to come to some grand conclusions. Yeah, picture us standing in front of a cork board with red string. We're going to find the answer. (laughs) We don't know what the question is. The meaning of life is inside of it. (laughs) So real quick... Yeah. Before we get to this week's memoirist. Of course. Ashley, if this week had been a memoir, what would the chapter be called? This week's chapter would be called Back on My Manifestation Bullshit. I have gotten very into manifesting again. I've been writing my lists, thinking of things. I've been thinking a lot about this viral mantra on TikTok. They say, I don't chase, I attract. What belongs to me will simply find me. And so then I was on that mantra of TikTok for a long time. And then I was on like backlash TikTok where people are like, I don't chase. So I just like sit in my house with the door open and wait for the things that I want to happen. And I was thinking about it a lot. And I actually think that the most important part of the mantra is I attract. Mm -hmm. Because I do think that wasting time hoping for things and losing energy, expecting things to happen or like chasing things down that don't make sense is a negative thing. But the attraction trying to become the person that the things you want exist for is a valuable thing to do. So like if you want people to listen to your podcast or a relationship or things like that, what version of yourself does those things happen to? And like trying to just be that really cool version of yourself. So that's what I'm working on right now. Attracting, trying to think of the things I want and how to be that person who has cool shit happening. I'm excited because... As somebody who is bound to you by a parachuteless fall, (laughs) the more good for you, the more good for me, baby. I'm trying to make things uh, grand for us both. Claire, Mm -hmm. what would you title your memoir this week? Okay, I'm not 100% sure because I know that there is a phrase, but it is so foreign to me that I can't even come up with it. What is it? I feel like it's a Latin phrase that means I was wrong. I admit defeat. Clearly, that's not like readily on the tip of my tongue. (laughs) Oh my God. I feel like we're experiencing history right now. We thought the one year anniversary of this podcast was an important moment. Claire being Latin wrong is, <laughs> is that, is there, is my apartment shaking? Is there an earthquake right now? <laughs> it's a freaky Friday situation. <laughs> As you guys know, I was going to a wedding last weekend and I was very apprehensive and I was kind of being a moody little bitch about it. I went and I have to say I had a ton of fun. Everything was great. There was no problems. <laughs> my months and months and months of like, panic-stricken buildup was truly for not. It turns out a wedding is just fucking drinking and dancing. Ain't that the truth? And that's not so hard. I'll tell you what, I love drinking and dancing. Some of you guys have reached out to me because I did post myself at a wedding this weekend on Instagram and you were like, was this the wedding where you were supposed to look so hot? The fact that you guys are even asking that question lets me know I did, in fact, fail at looking so hot. I thought you looked very hot. Thank you. But you know what? I did not look skinny. I thought you looked very skinny. Well, I was picking the pictures that were posted. But I think a bigger lesson I learned, and maybe people could take this with them, is that me being skinny wasn't going to make the weekend. Me letting go and having fun and being surrounded by loved people and being positive and being supportive of my friend, that's what was fun. I don't know that if I had gone and had a bad experience but looked very skinny, I would still be this happy. I think that that's very true. Will that mean I stop pursuing skinniness? Never. Not till my dying day, baby. You and I have some shit built up. Hmm. It's just society. What am I going to fight society? 
I don't have the time. But anyway, I did have a good time. It's not Mia Culpa and it's not Jacuzzi, but something. Jacuzzi was what I was thinking of. And I know that that's not it. Should we get into this week? I would love to get into this week's episode, you guys. Claire and I decided to spend our one year anniversary watching a childhood hero fall. Give it up for Melissa Joan Hart. As she explains it all, trigger warning, we talk about eating disorders, abortions, and sexual assault. None of these things actually happen to a Melissa, but we get them in there. You know us. We'll sneak them in. Ashley. Yes, Claire. Before you even read this, had you ever even heard of Melissa Joan Hart? What did you know? Funny you ask. I had heard of Melissa Joan Hart. I had seen a little TV show called Sabrina the Teenage Witch several times a day, every single day for, I would say, half a decade. (laughs) I loved that show so fucking much. I didn't know almost anything about Melissa Joan Hart's personal life, except for the fact that I remember seeing her on the cover of like a body after baby issue of a magazine. But most of all, Sabrina the Teenage Witch was one of the most important people in my life. I rewatched a couple of episodes this week whilst reading the book. And can I just say, I loved every second of it. It was like a hug. I hate saying that because it's repulsive and I don't even like hugs. But I was like, if hugs felt like this, I would want them. Watching Hilda and Zelda up to their hijinks, trying to keep track of Sabrina up to even more hijinks. I was so happy watching it for an hour and a half when I was supposed to be doing work. Claire, what did you know about Melissa Joan Hart? Sabrina the Teenage Witch was the most important TV show in my life. (laughs) To this day, it is so deeply lodged in my subconscious that one of my recurring nightmares that I've had since childhood is one where I am a witch a la Sabrina who has finger magic. Of course. And my finger is like broken and it won't do magic. That is my (laughs) go-to I'm naked in school nightmare. That is how deep in the recesses of my brain it is. I remember needing to see Drive Me Crazy with like a heroin fiend's need. It was so wild watching it and being like, God damn it, does this hold up? It is very funny. But other than that, I had no knowledge of Melissa Joan Hart as an independent woman outside of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yeah, I mean, same. I truly can hardly picture her in anything other than Sabrina garb. And it meant everything to me. Should we dive into these pages and find out what Melissa knows as she explains it all in her book, Melissa Explains It All? Let's go. Can I say one thing that annoys me about the title of this book? I actually think Clarissa Explains It All is the least important thing she's ever done. And so for her to name her book after it, it was just because it rhymed. It made me mad that it wasn't even a pun or a response. It was just a knockoff. I wish she had called it Melissa the Teenage Witch. Melissa the Grown-Up Bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Melissa Joan Hart was born in Sayreville, Long Island on April 18th, 1976. She was born the oldest child of eight to two parents. Do you know what their names were? Um, Mom and dad. (laughs) To two parents named mom and dad when mom was 20 and dad was 22. Irish Catholic blue collar Long Island folk. Her mom ended up popping out a bunch more pretty quickly. I mean... By the time she was 30, she had five kids. Yes. So her parents loved having children. And did they? Even more than they loved having children, they loved putting those children to work. So they did not have a ton of money. The mother was a stay-at-home mom. The dad was like a shellfish searcher in the ocean. I think he was like a lobster farmer. This is where it gets interesting. Between the ages of four and 12, Melissa Joan Hart would go on to do 100 national commercials in addition to modeling work 
work and walk on TV roles. She claims that she started acting because when she was four years old, she was watching one of the TV shows and she decided that she wanted to meet the main character so bad that she said, what if I was one of the little kids that surrounded them? A la Selena and Barney. Selena Gomez. So she asked her mom if she could audition. Her mom had a friend whose kid had just been booked in something. She called her up. The mom put her in touch with the agent. They got down to New York City the next day. The agent took one look at her on New Year's Eve when she was four years old, 1980, and said, all right, give me $300 right now to get professional headshots. I'll add her to the roster. And at that moment, her mom drained the bank account to give this guy $300 to get the headshots taken. Within a few months, they had fired this guy. She says, tip number one is you should never pay an agent or manager before they've booked you anything. And this guy was kind of sketchy and shady. But I do think it is important to recognize that because of a four-year-old's whim, the mother was willing to pay $300 to get headshots taken. They did not have money. These kids were barely getting Christmas presents, but at the idea of her becoming a star, the mom drained their bank account. So... I think that that's really interesting because we've talked about this a ton on the podcast with child stars in general. They all have this idea that it was their idea and it literally never is, okay? It is so easy for a parent to not take their toddler into the city for auditions. And if they are doing that, it's not because you chose it. So she likes to say that her parents did not push her at all. And then it was always something she loved. And she had always as a child seen it as a hobby. And weirdly enough, rejection didn't get her down. So it was never something that caused her pain. And she saw it as no different than soccer or the plays because we're doing at school. She said she had these hardworking parents. And she goes, so from a young age, I was aware that you had to work hard to pay for the things you needed or wanted and for what your family needed or wanted too. That is one of the saddest lines I think we've read in a memoir. I think what's confusing to me is she starts auditioning at four years old and out the gate, she books her first job. I mean, she does not stop booking things. She has major campaigns. As she says, one nationally syndicated commercial pays for a year's worth of mortgage payments. Yes. And her parents love that she did this. At one point, she wanted a treehouse and her dad said, sure, if you get three national commercials, I'll build you a clubhouse. So she says that they weren't pushing her, but they were literally putting prizes on the head of her success. Success. They didn't really have enough money for big Christmases, like I said before, but they were getting her a toy as a little reward every time she booked a job. So it was a huge motivation because she wasn't getting toys other random times of year. She was getting a toy when she succeeded. That is motivation to succeed. <laughs> she claims it was just her hobby, but then they got the whole family in it too. Her little sisters and brothers were also brought to auditions. And she goes, well, my mom just figured if I was going to be there, I might as well bring the kids too. And she goes, for us, acting was something my siblings and I wanted to do. And mom just made it happen. That's not true. <laughs> A few pages later, she jokes about how her sister's sonogram was actually used in an episode of All My Children and that the baby was booked to, upon birth, be the baby in All My Children and then ended up not being able to do it because All My Children decided to write it sooner than the baby would have been born. So they had to book a different baby. But she goes, but we always joke she had the earliest headshot of all time. And I was just like, what kind of Republican pro-life nonsense is that? That like a fetus is not only a person with a heartbeat, but a dream? You're telling me that your sibling's dream was to be an actor in utero? What if they did a new bill instead of the heartbeat bill they were like the dreams bill as soon as this kid can do career day <laughs> as soon as this kid can possibly make you money you can't kill it anymore let me tell you me and my brother we would have made it a long time in that <laughs> abortion zone my mom could still abort me if she wanted <laughs> it's funny, i got out of it now i'm back to abortable <laughs> so of course her mom becomes her manager and manages her and all the kids 
But here's why I think it's suspicious. I get that they were broke, that this was their way out. They pushed it. And it seems like it didn't really hurt her that much long term. She seems fine now. But what I don't understand is that she was clearly crushing it. And it wasn't just her that was working. Her sisters were working as well. I don't think her siblings were very successful. We'll mention one cruise ship gig. I think there's bits and bobs here and there, but I don't think any of them had the success that she had. I think she was really carrying the family. I believe that. But I do think if you got one thing a year, that could help for extra odds and ends. If you had a father who worked full time and a sister who was a very successful actress. If Melissa was covering the mortgage, what were the shellfish paying for? Yeah. Here's why I'm kind of suspicious, though, because she's talking about this work ethic. They had this blue collar, all American work ethic. And she's like, for example, when I was 10 years old and I couldn't afford to do extra ballet training to learn point, she goes, I was allowed to work and teach ballet to the four-year-olds in order to earn the extra day of practice at 10 years old. And so my question is, if she's booking all these jobs, why was there not money for her to even take a ballet lesson? She also jokes about how much she loved to dress up and play as these characters because she's like, you know, I only had three audition dresses. And I'm like, why did this girl not have more than three dresses? Why did she not be able to afford extracurriculars if she's bringing in all this money? Where did the money go? Why is she paying her family's mortgage and she can't get one new outfit? It does not really check out. And she said it was so exciting to get to wear this princess ball gown and play this rich girl in a movie because in real life, she didn't have a new audition dress. So that would have been after six years of successful commercialing. I'll tell you what, I have no explanation for it. <laughs> she also talks about her life back at school. So she's going in and out and nobody really knows what she does. She says that sometimes people would see her in commercials, but because all of her friends were young and she didn't know anybody famous, nobody really cared what she was up to. She was still a normal kid when she was back at school. I think they recognized it and they thought it was something interesting, but no one was like ogling her. This begins what I think is a very unique experience that Melissa Joan Hart has, which is I've been struggling to define it with words, but I'd say it. I wouldn't call her an actor because she can't act and I wouldn't call her a star because she has no je ne sais quoi. She just <laughs> is somebody who happened to have made a lot of money doing something that people try to do but fail at. She's a successful person on TV. Yeah. I guess you would just call her famous, but that's also a generous term because I think that if we had passed her in the stairwell just now, I don't know a hundred percent that I would have noticed. I say that she has the star quality of somebody's cousin who's famous. I feel like meeting her would be the equivalent of meeting like Brad Pitt's cousin. You're just like, whoa, I can't believe that you're his cousin. But you wouldn't be awestruck by the cousin. You'd be struck by how few degrees of separation you were now from Brad Pitt. Yes. I feel like, you know, when they're like, oh, to us, they're just a regular person. She really was just a regular person. Because she grew up as a child star, she does do a lot of fun name drops and we'll sprinkle those in. One of the first ones is she does a movie with Drew Barrymore, yeah. who calls her mom a bitch. She said as at 10 years old, she was smoking cigarettes, giving makeout classes, and she was like a real wild child who ran the roost and told adults what was what. She's like, Drew Barrymore was not the sweetheart you know today. And it's like, yeah, I think we actually know that. She was just out of rehab at this point. We covered Drew Barrymore's book a while back, and she is someone who has made a very definitive effort to become a kind person. And so it is interesting to get this little glimpse of what she was like before she made really active life choices to not be that person anymore. And I feel like this is the first of many times I think Melissa Joan Hart reveals a really unflattering side to someone for almost no reason at all. The interesting thing about this book is she really is clawing at trying to be relevant. And for some reason, it just does not stick. We'll get back to it. When she's about 12 years old, she gives up in the commercials and tries to level up her career by getting this major part in a play. 
She is an actor now. She's doing this very serious role where she has like a long ass monologue while she rides a stationary bike on stage. A 20 minute monologue that also involves three songs and is about having her dad molest her on the night she gets her first period. That's dramatic. Quite dramatic. But she gets a wonderful review by Frank Rich in the New York Times. And he's famous. He's famously their theater critic. Anyway, so she's in this play. Callista Flockhart is in it. And she really looked up to her. They really bonded. She viewed her as kind of an older sister, which she really loved because as the oldest of five, she really loved having finally someone who would guide her. And she said she got a lot of fashion advice and a lot of life tips from Callista. And she has this weird story that she includes for a reason that I once again could never explain where she talks about how one of her fondest memories of Callista is how they would go to this place and just share an entire pizza. And she goes, so later when there was all these rumors about her being anorexic, I wish I could show them photos of us eating pizza because it's just so obviously not true. She goes, I was tempted to leak photos of us surrounded by some big old pizza pies to prove the gossipers wrong. I suspect she's always been thin because she has a lot of nervous energy. And every time I read about a study that links fidgeting to weight loss, I think of Callista. That's such a weird thing to say, to be like, you think she's anorexic? I've literally seen her eat 10 years ago. She's not anorexic. She's nervous. She's nervous about you finding out that she's anorexic. I honestly don't know anything about Callista Flockhart. I know that she's anorexic. That's like the <laughs> one thing that anybody knows about her. I could not pin the tail on the Callista. I like don't even know what she looks like. She is Ally McBeal. Oh, the famously anorexic TV show. <laughs> I mean, she is why Portia de Rossi was anorexic. <laughs> that one pizza 10 years ago has been holding her over. So from the success of this play, she actually goes on to get Clarissa Explains It All, which is a new Nickelodeon show. It's the first one with a female lead. She goes in for three auditions and she nabs it. They love her. They love that she has an alternative taste in music. I believe she said that her favorite band was They Might Be Giants and they were like, this is Clarissa. Clarissa debuted in March 1991, and it filmed in Orlando on the Nickelodeon studio there, which you may recall from stories of the Mickey Mouse Club. They also filmed Full House there. So she has really fond memories of Clarissa Explains It All. I mean, we get the classic, we were a family, my Clarissa family, blah, blah, blah. Everyone who's ever worked on a TV show, especially as a kid, has a family there. What's interesting is that her actual family was not there. At this point, her mom had too many other kids she was juggling. She could not uproot everything and go down to Florida with her for the weeks that they were filming. So she had a Florida guardian. Who was always just like whatever drunk 24-year-old girl they found. Yeah. The way that Britney Spears had Felicia, who was just... Like a dental hygienist nearby. That her mom had heard of through <laughs> a friend who watched her for six months. Melissa had a list of guardians that were just like a girl her mom found who may or may not have been fit to watch a child. At one point, her mom was on a cruise ship because her sister had like a three-month contract performing on a cruise ship. And the mom ended up hiring the magician's assistant to be Melissa's guardian in Florida. They also referred to her solely as the babe. Her mom just found a hot girl and was like, hey, do you know teenagers? <laughs> do you want a job being a teenager's parent? She says it didn't really matter that her guardians were never great because she was very disciplined about not acting out. So she worked on this show from January 1991 to December 1993 from the ages of 14 to 17, which would have been rebel rousing times, I would say. She really is very careful to point out how responsible and independent she was and how she was essentially living as an adult down in Florida. She says, I think my mom's unlikely choice for role models shows how much she trusted me to make sound decisions alone. 
I actually think her mom just like couldn't be bothered. And she's really proud of the fact that she's like, my parents were pretty trusting in us. And because of that, we really lived up to their expectations and never made them upset and always tried our hardest. And I think this is where we really start to see her oldest daughter of divorce shine through. Melissa Joan Hart is the ultimate oldest daughter. She literally from the age of four pays for her whole family. She supports them financially. At 13, she's sent off to Orlando to raise herself with the expectation that, of course, we can't come with you. You have other brothers and sisters. When her parents get divorced around this time, when she's about 14 or 15, she talks about how she becomes her mom's confidant to get through the divorce. And her mom would often come and cry to her and talk shit about the dad to her and go through all their problems together. So she really takes on this role as like a young adult who does everything right and just works really hard and tries really hard and doesn't want to cause problems. And I think that's why she was such a successful child actor. She talks about from youth being one time in a Bill Cosby commercial. She says, every time a jello eating child misbehaved, in quotes, say, mentioned that he had a stomach ache or asked to trade his chocolate dessert for vanilla, Bill promptly gave him the boot. So from then on, I always respectfully did what I was told while flashing a camera ready smile, even if it drove me insane. And so she did have this insane work ethic and discipline that she got from doing these commercials because she knew she had to be on set doing exactly what they said for 12 hours a day or she wouldn't get the job. And that carries through Clarissa. And it's just interesting because she is a 13, 14 year old living alone. She's the title star of this show but she makes sure to constantly say things like she was so obsessed with like thanking the crew and acknowledging how it was a family effort and her time was not as valuable as the people around her's time and just because she was the star she didn't need to be the center of attention she goes my ego never got in the way of remembering that the show had writers and producers for a reason it's very funny to me the way her ego refocuses because she obviously is a TV star through and through she cannot walk away from the business her entire life she does love being the center of attention in this way. But I think that instead of putting it on herself, she puts it on her projects and she loves to really hype up the project as a whole instead of being like, I was great. I was the star. She loves to be like, we made something incredible. I think it's because she came from such a big family and she'll say a few times later in the book that she loves being the center of attention because she didn't get it at home. I think she's also very aware that she's not entitled to being the center of attention. Yeah. But at any moment, it could go away just like with her family. So she doesn't do everything perfectly. She won't get anymore. But when she leaves the show after it is canceled, she says, rather than revel in the fact that I played the lead in a sitcom, which means my world literally revolved around me for four years, a teenager's dream come true, right? I somehow came out of these years feeling more responsible and introspective than smug and insufferable. And I do think it's because during this time, her parents went through a divorce and it was like, if it hadn't been explicitly said to her yet that she was essentially the motor of the family and that the full responsibility of keeping the family clothed and housed and fed fell on her than it did now because when her parents got divorced her mom really uh let it rock i also want to mention one other thing from this time before we move on that has nothing to do with the story it just like sent an absolute chill down my spine she's talking about how independent and responsible she is living in florida she says i had to set an alarm at night and make grown-up choices like what shampoo to use aveda and what skincare products would keep me from breaking out clinique and there was something about the combination of aveda and clinique that fucking rocked me there's a smell from my teenage years where i was obsessed with aveda peppermint shampoo and clinique skincare products there is something about it that like has such a visceral feeling to me that I feel like I'm gonna get a pimple right now just from talking about Clinique skincare products this whole book is like a nostalgia trip and that line was a lot so while she was on set for Clarissa explains it all her parents got divorced the inciting incident was a cruise well the inciting incident was a horrible marriage that should have never happened in the first place Yeah, but like the kickoff for the actual divorce was a cruise which definitely checks out they fought the whole time 
By the time they had docked again, they were getting divorced and the mother was moving into Manhattan on 11th Street and 6th Avenue across from Famous Ray's Pizza in Greenwich Village. She got a full townhouse and I have to say... Where was all the money going? And I would guess to renting this townhouse. I definitely think that if we're like, how could the money have disappeared so fast? And then you look at the Greenwich Village townhouse and you go, oh. I have to say, I don't think the money disappeared. I'm almost positive that the mom is candy spelling it. I think she's going to die worth a billion dollars. That's entirely possible. Her mom hadn't even told her that she had officially moved out. When she would fly back to New York, there was a car that would take her from the airport to her parents' house. And the car just went a different way than usual and took her to the townhouse in Greenwich Village. And she was like, oh, I guess we live here now. No one told me. They like did not send a change of address card. The other thing that was terrible is that she would come back from Clarissa where she was working three weeks out of the month. Then she was staying at her mom's house on the weekdays and her dad's house on the weekend. So she lived in three places for months out of the year. But here's where you really see her like people pleasing ways. She goes, it actually sounded more annoying than it was. Children of divorce usually have a hard time with their parents separation. But after those two initial weeks of ennui, I got over the sad part and did my best to work through the anger that came with having a severed family. I'm not sure if I could compartmentalize these feelings because I was old enough to talk about what had happened with my siblings. She was 14. Or because I could see how unhappy my parents really were on that cruise ship. And then she tells this funny story about how there's still fork marks among the cabinets from a fight they had. And you're like, ha ha ha, funny. But I'm sorry, it took you two weeks to get over your parents' divorce and the fact that you lived in three different cities right now. I mean, that is a lot of moving. That's very difficult to deal with. One of the other changes that happened is when she started Clarissa, she was still enrolled in her regular high school and having to complete assignments from Florida. And that was just very hard to keep up with. So she enrolls in the professional children's school in Manhattan, which is this high school for child stars that really exists just to like get you a diploma. They're like, I don't know, these kids are going to be something. We don't really need to teach them geometry. We'll pretend we're teaching it, but hang out, be hot, do your thing. I think the premise is they teach the same thing every day. So even if you miss 17 weeks, you come back and you're right where they left you. On the same page of The Great Gatsby. Obviously, the school is full of famous kids. Some of her notable classmates were Sarah Michelle Gellar, Jerry O'Connell, the Culkin brothers. She also mentions stand-up comics and ballerinas. And I'm just like, what fucking high school stand-up comedians were going to special high school? Stand-up comedy is at night and also not for kids. She says that Macaulay Culkin was very popular since it was well known that he was a mega million dollar movie star. But she said Mac and his brother Kieran were wild, arrogant boys who seemed spoiled by too much attention from fans. She has this aside about her relationship with Sarah Michelle Geller, which is deeply unhinged, if you ask me. It's one of the more delusional things I've seen in a memoir. So Sarah Michelle Geller was at this school and she talks about how they were a year apart and they were never that close, but they had seen each other around at auditions because they have the same general type. And she says, it's funny that our lives went on to mimic each other and still do. When I shot Clarissa, she dazzled on all my children as Susan Lucci's daughter. I used to randomly turn it on and feel proud that I knew her. Then about six months after Sabrina first aired, Sarah began slaying vampires as Buffy. And a decade later, when I began shooting my third sitcom, Melissa and Joey, her third show launched too. The tabloids have kept me posted on the similarities in our personal lives as well. We got our first tattoos around the same time, got married a year apart, and seemed to have timed a few of our pregnancies simultaneously. Isn't that strange? It's literally not strange. Can you believe that me and this woman who are the same age and on the same career paths have similar milestones? I think to compare Sabrina and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which were both important shows to me, is 
actually unhinged. She calls her her cosmic twin. She says, whenever I hear something new about my cosmic twin, I stop to wonder if I've had or will have similar experiences in my own life. To think that you and Sarah Michelle Gellar are on the same plane. I don't know why Sarah Michelle Gellar is so much more famous and important than you, but I know that she deeply is. She also talks about her best friend in high school, Tara Reed, and says this bizarre ass line. She was a lively and naughty friend. Unlike the skin, bones, and boobs she is now, Tara was a plump young thing in high school. That is not a necessary thing to say. I just say, I don't know why you would ever say that about somebody you claim was your friend. I don't even know why you would say that about somebody who is your enemy. It makes you look so mean and petty. It only hurts the person who writes it. I mean, just why, you know? Also, while shooting Clarissa, she does land her first boyfriend. It's someone back in Long Island who lives near her dad's house. And she meets him on some weekend romp with the friends. And then this is also around the time that she has her first kissing scene. And they bring her in to be like, who do you want to kiss? They show her a couple headshots. And she's like, anyone but that guy who happened to be James Vanderbeek. They do pick James Vanderbeek. And she also feels the need in this book to talk about how unattracted to James Vanderbeek she is. And I'm like, I don't understand why you had to do this she's like we both were like so in love with our boyfriends and girlfriends back home so neither of us wanted to do this kissing scene but he told me that he didn't want to kiss me and I was like I don't want to kiss you either and she calls him James Vanderblah and I'm like what was that for another deeply important name drop that I think actually has a weightier meaning behind it is so she meets this guy through her agent he also is a child actor with a family in the biz she gets him to like her he would do this thing where to flirt he would try to surprise me with a quick shove into a pile of trash or a street lamp and then say watch out for that garbage I somehow found it charming even if it was gross and then here's where it gets interesting Being with him was also one of my first times I'd hooked up with an aggressive, handsy kind of guy. So I dressed in layers to make it more difficult for him to get what he was after. I'd wear trendy leopard top with snap crotch, tight jeans, and a big belt combat boots that took forever to unlace and finish the look with a flannel shirt tied around my waist. All the extra clothes were really meant to slow the boy down. I think of our tricky makeout sessions when I flipped past Fox on TV since the boy in the story was Danny Masterson, who played Stephen Hyde on That 70s Show. See, I think this was a useful, interesting name drop to be like, this guy was handsy and now he's a well-known rapist. Whereas like, I don't know that he was a well-known rapist back then. Oh, so she was just saying that. In the same way that in Jenna Jameson, she was like, isn't it funny how Marilyn Manson scared me so much by saying he wanted to light me on fire all the time? And then you're like, actually, it wasn't funny. It was part of a pattern of abuse. I do feel like this is a good reminder. It's never just one person. It always starts somewhere. Like these people start early and they get worse and worse and worse. So by the time it gets to you... I mean, it's same as the James Franco story in Busy Phillips's book. It's always who you expect. It's always a pattern. It never came out of nowhere. It was never a fluke. It's never one time. Like in this story, I could see how she was like, oh, he was just handsy. I didn't know. He was cute. He was flirty. You know how boys are. And it's not like here he's doing anything illegal. He's trying to make out with his girlfriend. But already he's making his girlfriend uncomfortable. Yeah. Already there's this distinct sense of like what he's doing is too much and I don't want it. He will not listen to me or pick up on what I'm saying. So I have to like wear clothes that just physically block him. Already I have to protect myself against this man. And he's not even a man yet. He's just a boy. And his brother was Chris Masterson, who played Francis on Malcolm in the Middle, it turns out. I had no idea. Yeah. Anyway, she gets this first real boyfriend, Mike. They date for years, and she loses her virginity to him. And this is the first time she is overtly sexual in this book. She talks about losing her virginity, and she talks about planning it out and bringing several lingerie sets with her. I don't know what it is about her. I'm a sex-positive person, okay? Any of the other books we've read, I'm just like, get it, 
bitch. For some reason, Melissa Joan Hart being sexy, it just feels incorrect. It's truly like watching someone chew ice to me. I'm like, just don't do that. It is. There's something jarring about every time she says sex or talks about sexy. It's also forced in the book, both in content and in style. Whenever she talks about sex, you're like, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. And then also the story itself, you're like, oh, I don't think you should have done that. The night she loses her virginity, she was at an award show. She flew out to Los Angeles with her mom, her mom's boyfriend, and her boyfriend. And her mom had gotten her and her boyfriend their own hotel room. She says it's because her mom thought they were fucking and they hadn't yet and she wanted to make it this very special night she brings two of Victoria's Secret outfits to put on for him and I'm just like stop saying this to me I wanted to like plug my ears and be like la 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 <laughs> every time she talks about sex in this book she's like I know that you think of me as a child star, but I do sex and I do sex with costumes. There's one story at the end about how she had a sex toy in her bag for Valentine's Day for her husband. The guy at the airport saw it. She brings this story up, not just in the preface, but also in the final chapter. And then also like two more times. And she's like, here's what to do if you ever get caught with sex toys. And then the story ends. She's like, the guy didn't say anything. He just put it back. And it was like, actually, your toothbrush was the one vibrating. It's fine. This story was so important to her. I'm like, there is no story here. Her and that guy end up dating until he goes to college and starts cheating on her. I also think this is a pretty interesting line. After she finds out he's cheating on her, he had started working for her dad and her dad refused to fire him and she couldn't get closure because her siblings stayed close to him and kept calling with sightings and updates. I don't love this. I mean, there's like no respect for her with her family. They're like, stop telling me who I can and can't be friends with and pay my electricity bill. <laughs> this actually dovetails nicely into the chapter she calls moms do the darndest thing about the relationship she has with her mom. So at this point, her mom is not just her mother. She's also her manager. Her mom kept having kids, but when she was not pregnant, would get right back down to 110 pounds and loves the compliment. I can't believe you have so many kids. You look so great. She talks about how it was really hard to get her mother's approval as a kid. She wasn't free with compliments, but when she gave one, she really meant it. She talks about how they have this bizarre relationship as kind of co-workers, best friends, slash mother, daughter. She talks about how she was not strict with her and she goes, because I didn't ever want to upset or disappoint her, I also took a huge parenting burden off her hands. She didn't have to be a strict disciplinarian or overbearing nudge. I'd play that role for myself, which I don't know that you should have to parent yourself. That's the thing is that you just shouldn't have to. Like, of course, you shouldn't be out of control, but the idea that you were a good kid because your mom didn't have the capacity for disciplining you is tough. Her mom also went through this phase after the divorce when she was living in this West Village townhouse where she was partying hard. She got in pretty tight with the gay scene and had a gay best friend living with them in the townhouse. So when the kids would go to the dads on Long Island on the weekend, she would just full out go clubbing every weekend. And Melissa writes that she could tell which of her mom's best friends was sleeping in her bed when she got back on Monday because she would smell the pillow and be like, oh, that's Joe. <laughs> yeah, she says mom definitely made the most of her journey towards discovering her new grown up self, especially since she never got to sow her wild oats when she was young. So despite having five kids between the ages of three and 13, she explored her new city, home, and men like a foxy broad she was. It's just such an interesting bundle of traits that her mom has. This person who got married and started having kids fresh out of high school because that was just the option that there was then. But then... I also think it's because they're Irish Catholic and so I'm sure they didn't believe in birth control. There weren't options. That's what I mean. It was the thing. There weren't options. It was the option. And then she did have this kind of wild side 
but then also this really strict buttoned up side still. Like the mom at one point told Melissa, you don't have to do drugs. I've done all the drugs and none of them are really worth it. They had that relationship where the mom, even before her divorce was like, I do a fuck ton of drugs. Don't worry about it. But she was also this married mother of five. But then also after she got divorced, she was partying on the weekends. But then also when Melissa is talking about her sort of disciplinary skills, her mom had these weird rules like no tattoos that are visible in a wedding dress, which to me is such an interesting rule of like, don't look like a whore on the day that you pledge yourself to a man in a pure white dress. It's so weird all of these things layered on top of each other and then also the fact that she didn't really parent Melissa at all but expected a lot in return yeah she says the mom wanted me to be her confidant or at least acted like she did I was too young angry and selfish to be one I don't think you're too selfish to be your mom's confidant when you're 13 yeah it's literally not selfish to not be your mom's mom she goes the only people I wanted to help were me and my siblings because we were all on the receiving end of the chaos and it's funny because in this chapter she says that her and her mom have had scruffs that have sent her friends into a tizzy Like, I can't believe your mom did that. But besides the fact that her mom relied on her a lot, which I think is pretty common, she doesn't have any specifics about things that her mom has done to her. And it's very sandwiched between love. It's sandwiched between a lot of perspective. She raised all these kids. She was a great momager. She created an incredible business. When she married her next husband, he was great. I love her. I always hope to be like her. And later she gives her a lot of credit for being a better mom than she ever is. But then eventually when she's talking about her husband and the tension between her mom and her husband, she tells the story about how when she first started dating him, her mom would act out and be mean to her. And like one time she told me my arms were too fat to wear tank tops and Sabrina. And it's just so funny to me that in the chapter about her and her mom, she doesn't divulge any interesting details. But then when she's defending her husband, she fully throws her mom under the bus because that is such a specific story that doesn't even have anything to do with her husband. Yeah. But then she also ends this chapter by saying, without a doubt, we love, respect, and look out for each other. When we fight, we might hurl insults in the first thing we see, chairs included, but often we let it go the next day. That is intense. It's intense to throw a chair. To be in a fight with anyone where you're throwing furniture is a lot. To be in a fight with your mom where you're throwing furniture as adults is a lot. So after this period of time where they are just partying best friends and her mom is her manager, they end up starting a business together. They start a production company. Heartbreak Productions. As Melissa is going off to college and the mom is in charge of it. And they do a couple random little projects. And then the mom licensed the characters, Sabrina, Zelda, Hilda, Harvey, and Salem from Archie Comics. And they create Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I had no idea that they made it. They were the executive producers. They licensed those rights for $1, which is a deal that I didn't even know was possible. How badly did Archie Comics not think that that was worth anything? They said it was a rare comic strip that only went out once in a while, like on Halloween specials. Something interesting about that deal, though, is they had to promise all these dorky little concessions, which were that Sabrina would always wear a seatbelt. Sabrina would always cross at the crosswalk. They had to keep her wholesome image, which I think is funny. Especially because Archie Comics went on to allow Riverdale to exist. That's what I was thinking this entire time. (laughs) So after Close explains it all, she thinks she's going to go to NYU for a semester. She doesn't go for the first semester. She ends up doing a TV movie the first semester. So she has to delay. And then she ends up going second semester freshman year to NYU for like a minute. Back to the money thing. She goes, I did it because they offered me so much money that I was shocked to hear the number. And I figured I should probably do this movie that'll pay for me to go to school. And again, I'm like, did you not have money for college in the 90s after doing four seasons of a TV show? And hundreds of commercials. Why did you still need to make pocket change? I guess NYU is really expensive. So she goes to NYU for one semester. Then Heartbreak Productions ends up making a Sabrina the Teenage Witch movie, which then they almost immediately sell as a TV show 
also. And I also want to point out that Ryan Reynolds was in the movie. And they have like a makeout sesh while she was already in a relationship with someone else. He comes to visit her a few weeks later in New York City and she goes, but I didn't hook up with him because I went on to have a four year long committed relationship with my boyfriend. And I'm like, well, minus the time you hooked up with Ryan Reynolds. You can't just start counting it after the last time you cheat. And she told Ryan Reynolds that she could make out with him that week, but no more than that because she had a boyfriend that she wanted to make it work with. She was like, listen, I'm in a thing right now. Mouth stuff only. <laughs> so she makes Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the movie. The movie. And then it gets picked up as a TV show on ABC. And here she says our favorite line. She thinks that she's going to go to NYU and like be in college, I guess. And study acting and directing at Tisch. Which honestly she should have done. Then Sabrina the Teenage Witch gets picked up and she says, but you know what my Bible study friends say? If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. A variation on that line (laughs) we read in Priyanka Chopra's book about telling her your plans. And here's the thing about both uses of this quote. It's wrong. (laughs) This line has gotten interpreted now in two memoirs in a row to mean if you want to make God chuckle, the funniest thing in the world is that I thought I was going to do something a little bit cool and instead I became wildly successful. God is up there laughing his fucking ass off or her ass off thinking, I thought this person was going to have a fairly successful career, but instead they had a second wind that was very successful. And that's funny. Forget those kids in Haiti, okay? That's something I'll do with later. I am up here laughing at my handiwork, what I did to Melissa Joan Hart. She thought she was going to go to school, but I made her a TV star twice over. Anyway, so they go on to start Sabrina. She goes, it was also the first time my agent had contacted me instead of mom about a role and announced how much I'd be paid for the part. When I did Clarissa, I never asked what I made and nobody ever told me. Even now, I'm not clear on the numbers, but I don't care. I did it for fun. Okay. Now God's laughing. I'm laughing. Okay, you did it for fun. You worked and didn't go to school and you worked for three years to have to then work some more to just be able to pay for your own tuition. Where did the money go? What do you mean you never asked? I would would be more mad if I was her. I guess she has done a lot of work in burying all her feelings just like she did in the divorce. She doesn't get mad. She just works harder. She talks a lot about the time working on Sabrina, which honestly sounded fun. She says that one of the things that they worked super hard on was ironing out the special effects and making Salem the cat look real. She is always incorrect about what people care about. With Sabrina, she's like, they love that the special effects looked so legit. That is not what we liked. She's like, whenever people see me on the street, they're always clamoring to know how I got Salem to talk. They always run after me and they go, how did you get Salem to talk? How did you get a cat to talk? She's like, it was special effects. And I was like, it was a puppet. I am surprised that there was three people manning Salem at all times. So the way Salem was manned was they had two electronic professional puppeteers. One controlled his mouth and cheeks and the other controlled his body. And then there was a person under there, a tiny little woman who was like also controlling his body, I guess. Like in the cabinets beneath where Salem was seated, there was someone in there holding Salem. And then there was a fourth guy who did the voice. And then she talked about all the times that woman who was hiding in the cabinets got in trouble because I guess they had a ton of live animals on Sabrina. This is something that I had not realized. 
Well, when you think about it, think about how much Sabrina like fucks shit up and accidentally turns something into like an alligator. That is actually a recurring theme. That woman was always the only woman on set with all these wild animals. And one time the alligator attacked the couch and like threw the cat and the woman was hiding in the couch and she just had to wait there for the alligator to be done. And there was a jaguar that got loose on set. And then Melissa goes, I was never on set with these wild animals because for insurance purposes, I couldn't be in the same room as wild animals because I was too valuable to lose. One puppet lady in a cabinet, they stack like eight of them in there. Okay. There's plenty. So when she's on Sabrina, she also begins her partying years. By the time Sabrina's on air, she's like about 20 years old. And she hits the Hollywood party scene pretty hard. And she has a great time with it. She does make a couple mentions of the fact that she wasn't a big drinker. And then she mentions her 21st birthday where it was her number one goal to get fucking wasted. And she mentions having 18 shots. And I'm just like, you were drinking then. She says they had a different club every night of the week that they went to. And then on the weekends, they did house parties. She has that line where she goes, I'm not a big drinker. I can't even finish a lemonade in one sitting, let alone an entire vodka. vodka. And you're like, okay, well then what were you doing at a different club every night of the week? I also want to take a minute to talk about her fame. I guess the reason Melissa Joan Hart is such an enigma for me is because she was a deeply important part of my childhood. My love for her drove me to be an absolute wretched biatch to my mother as a child. She sits still in the folds of my subconscious, a potential metaphor for impotence, I suppose. And I also know a lot about pop culture. And she talks at this time about partying with people like Ashton Kutcher... And she was going out with Wilmer Valderrama. She was on vacation with NSYNC at one point. She said one time she comes back to her house, Marlon and Sean Wayans were just hanging out, Andy Dick. But she was always out partying every night. But yet, I feel like she wasn't famous. I just like don't believe her. And she says at one point, her and Brandy hosted the American Music Awards. Like clearly she was very technically famous. And yet I do not feel like she was a part of the zeitgeist. Like when people look at old photos of people partying, they never look at her. I feel like I never see photos of her on 90s anxiety or any of those weird nostalgia Instagrams that aren't Sabrina the Teenage Witch photos. Also in other memoirs we've read, I feel like we've heard of this click that that 70s show crew and Ashton Kutcher and January Jones. I feel like we've heard of this group before and Melissa Joan Hart, I don't remember hearing her name ever. I was actually thinking when I was reading this and she was talking about Drew Barrymore that you could rank every celebrity's clout based on who they name drop in their memoir and who name drops them. Yes. Everybody name drops Ashton Kutcher. I would love to see who Ashton Kutcher would bring to the table in his memoir. Like who makes his cut? I think literally just January Jones, Demi Moore and Mila Kunis. I bet he wouldn't mention Demi Moore. I think he has to say that he was married to her. I bet he wouldn't use her name. I bet he'd go, I was part of this relationship. Do you know why he would mention her? Maybe not by name, you're right, but he would definitely mention her because he would mention being a stepfather and how important that time was to him. That's spot on. He'd go, when I was in my 20s, I had the lucky opportunity to become a stepfather. To other people in their 20s. But so nevertheless, she considered herself a partier. She bought this sick sounding bachelor pad, honestly. Yeah, she really brought the party back to her house, which pardon me for saying something that is about to be quite rude. It does seem like she was the kind of person who was not going to be invited unless she made the party. Oh my God. Very Jodie Sweeten. Yes. 
I do think that is something that's drilled into your head when you've been raised as the provider as a child, that like your value is what you can pay for. Thinking about the level of people that she partied with, it's weird that we don't remember her in this way. She even has a story one time of when Brittany guested on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Brittany was six years younger than her, but she really related to Brittany because she saw how busy she was and that she knows what it's like to be like a young woman starting out in the business. And because she was the expert here, she would always invite Brittany to lunch. Brittany always wanted to go to lunch, but then would look to her manager and her bodyguard and be like, can I go? And they'd be like, no, you're too busy. And she'd be like, sorry, I can't go. She came up with this idea to break Brittany out of the hotel so they could take her out and party and hang out with kids her own age, which was like 18, 19, I guess. At go time, Brittany ran out of her hotel lobby and into my car. Her enormously scary but sweet bodyguard called Big Rob jumped in front of the vehicle and asked where I was taking her. I lied and said that we were going to my mom's house for homemade lasagna, so he let us leave. We then pulled up to Club Cherry, a raucous weekly dance party. A club promoter met us around the back to sneak Brittany in and get us a booth. She goes, once we were in there, I lost Brittany, but she was dancing all night and I left her behind and she seemed to be okay on her own. But I do think that's like an interesting insight into that her bodyguard didn't really work for her. He worked for the record label, making sure that she was getting to her promos and her choreography rehearsals and everything she needed to do. I mean, it was Spice Girls style level busy. When we did Who's With Tabs, that was when we realized her first three albums happened in rapid succession. It was three albums in three years with touring in between. I mean, she was never not on. The idea that the bodyguard wouldn't let her go out and do something she, an adult woman, wanted to do. And the fact that she's really always been a prisoner. It really is sad. Okay, so she does include a little 9-11 tale, true to memoir form. So she was on vacation with NSYNC. NSYNC did an episode of Sabrina the Teenage Witch in 1999. And in that episode, they invited her to come to a post-world tour party they were having in the Bahamas in 2001 at the end of the summer. So I've never heard of an invitation going out that early, but I guess these poor boys' lives were planned to the minute. Anyway, we're in the Caribbean partying with Tori Spelling, Tara Lipinski. The boys took off for the States on September 10th, while the rest of us hung back to worship the sun a little longer. The next day, planes hijacked by terrorists struck the Pentagon and New York City's Twin Towers. She was stuck on the islands, of course, because there's no planes. Eventually, her mom was able to send a private jet to get me and a friend, though it was a seven-seater. Nobody else wanted to hitch a ride. And then she goes, once we touched down on U.S. soil, I kissed the ground in homage to my country and the victims of this tragedy. I wore red, white, and blue for at least one scene in every episode for the rest of that Sabrina season. If you catch my USA necklace, flag belt buckle, or any other patriotic wardrobe choices in a show, you'll know it's a season six episode. I almost think it's more disrespectful to the people who died on 9-11 to be like, in your honor, I had an outfit in one scene per show that whole season. I know. And she wore this like eagle dress on late night. She got real patriotic. So gross. (laughs) So in this rowdy time for Melissa, it's crazy because this is like her crazy 20s, but she's just a rich girl in her 20s doing very normal things. She has a boyfriend who moves in with her. Her friends are always crashing at her pad. They party, they dance. She'll do shrooms. She smokes weed. She's like trying little things that aren't that crazy, but she's talking about them in this book. Like these are the salacious stories we've all been waiting for. So her big story is this. One night she goes to the Midsummer's Eve party at Playboy and it's funny because this is before the girls next door and she calls that out by name and she's like, so nobody who hadn't been there really knew what the mansion looked like and we were all wondering what happens at these crazy parties. She shows up in her lingerie. She does E. She's partying all night. She says her and her friend go back in a limo with their two boyfriends and the girls start making out to try to get the boys all hot and bothered. And then the boys fell asleep because they were just like on drugs and she was like, I guess the makeout was just for us. 
And then she gets home and in 30 minutes, she has a car service coming because she had been on Maxon's Hot 100 that year and she was going to do a photo shoot with them. She was going to be on the cover. So she goes and she talks about how normally she's very reserved and doesn't wear anything scandalous, but she was still coming down from E. She was exhausted. And so she wore whatever bra and panties that they wanted her to. And I guess the Archie comics had like a field day with it. They were so mad that she was all slutty on the cover of Maxim. And she shows us this photo from that shoot that she's really proud of. And it really like solidifies how unsexy she is. I wonder if that's why Sabrina and Drive Me Crazy worked. It's because it is believable. Not that she would be the hottest girl in a movie high school, but if she was just well-dressed and rich, she is pretty enough to be the most popular, not the most beautiful, the most popular girl at a high school in Iowa. I guess there's something, though, that even at her best, there's just no intrigue there. I feel like she is my cousin. But because when she was playing Sabrina, she was just this relatable everyday girl. And you're like, yes, she literally is. And then in Drive Me Crazy, I don't know what your high school was like. In my high school, it was not the hottest, most intriguing, most interesting girl who was at the top. But I'm not talking about could she believably play a hot girl in a movie. I'm talking about why I'm looking at photos of her right now and going, I just do not care. I'm reading her memoir going, I just do not care. I guess I do care because I'm intrigued about why I don't care. I've never seen somebody have so much success and absolutely zero star quality. But that's what I'm saying is the only things that she's in that resonate are things that it's deeply believable that she is that character. Like it's not acting. You're not watching because you're like so taken with her. You're watching because you're like, this is a scenario that I've seen before that I recognize and then I could see myself in. Anyway, so she went through this partying phase where she never really became part of the, the clique, but she was a destination. That's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of. Did I just not know she had these teen queen of LA years or did she just not have them? I think she had them, but she had them in the same way that all of these other famous people's assistants had them. Like they were all yes. at the parties too, but they're not in the pictures and they're not in the memories. Jody Sweeten was also at those parties, but she yes. was not an it girl. There was other people there. When we hear about these parties, it wasn't a party of seven in a whole ass nightclub. There was other people filling the nightclub. It was full of extras and Melissa Joan Hart was an extra. That's what <laughs> she is. She's an extra who happens to be the titular character. <laughs> Quite postmodern when you think about it. <laughs> she breaks up with James, who was her boyfriend who lived with her at the time because he's cheating on her too. Then she gets with this guy who she does not name by name. We found him on the internet supposedly, but he was just this awful drug addict boyfriend that was mean to her and never put her first. And she was just kind of like babysitting and giving him a place to live. And they were like dating. I shot for the stars and guessed it was Shia LaBeouf, but the internet was like, no, it was actually this absolute no name. So I guess it's not that important, but I actually do think it is important that she had this extra bad Hollywood relationship. I think it's one of the things that made her move to Connecticut later on. I think she was like, "Ugh, LA is bad. Everyone here is rude. I think he was addicted to math. And the final straw was that she had to film the season finale for Sabrina the next day. And she was directing, which was something she was able to do on Sabrina because she was the executive producer whose only boss was her own mom. So she was able to direct more and she asked him to come home at 10 so she'd get a good night's sleep. And of course, at 9.59, he called her to be like, I'm staying out late. So she goes to set, calls her assistant and says, pack up all his shit, get him out by the end of the day. So they break up in the spring of 2002. In May of 2002, she goes to the Kentucky Derby as a celebrity. She's invited to the Jubilee Party, which is a pro-cancer celebrity event. They're always gunning for more cancer. <laughs> so Jerry O'Connell is flirting with her. 
I always forget who he is, but I think he's famous. He was married to someone famous. And he himself is famous. Oh, Rebecca Ramjin. Yeah. He's flirting with her. She's asked to introduce the band. Okay. So there's this hired help. They hire like a wedding band to come play. It's called Course of Nature. I am begging you, dear (laughs) listeners, if you've ever heard of this band, please let me know. Ashley, have you heard of it? I've not. Ask your dad. Right now? Yeah. Hey, I have a question. Yeah. Have you heard of the band Course of Nature? The band Course of Nature? Yeah. No, I don't think I have. They're not on a single one of your playlists? No, why are they good? Um, no, I don't think they exist, but I just needed you to confirm it. Wait, you, you were trying to bluff me? They pretend to exist. Melissa Joan Hart is married to the lead singer, but I just can't believe that they ever existed. I think you're focusing on the wrong thing. I think what you should be focusing is on, like, what the hell are you guys going to do after you find out nobody gives a shit about Melissa Joan Hart? (laughs) Thank you for your help. (laughs) We're just recording right now, and I needed to know if you've ever heard of Course of Nature. So you didn't get that on recording, did you? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well, you have it, folks. Course of Nature never existed. Okay, anyway, so she is at the Kentucky Derby. She introduces this band called Course of Nature, which may or may not have ever existed. And she is like, that lead singer who may actually be a caterer is a smoke show. (laughs) Here's why it's interesting is because she's like, I go into the Kentucky Derby being like, I'm never going to date again. I'm going to go on a boy hiatus. It is literally two months after her and her ex broke up. She sees this guy. She gets someone to give her number to him. She also has another trauma that night where she finds out her ex who she had just kicked out is already dating someone else and moved in with someone else and she is like so upset about it that she has to just go fuck Jerry O'Connell then she starts talking to her now husband so he left a few days later she calls his manager whose number she had she calls the manager and they end up speaking for hours he calls right back and gives her his number they start this phone conversation where they're talking like three times a day every night and They're both super busy, but they have this plan to meet up in New York in the middle of the month when Mark had five days off and I'd be back from traveling to Monaco and the Cannes Film Festival with my family. Mark and I plan to meet each other's families in New York, California, and Alabama. It would be the longest date I'd ever had. So their first date was a literal trip across the United States to meet her dad, his family, and then her mom. And this is after two weeks of phone conversations. So first they go to New York, they meet her family, then they get to Alabama and she's like, I could tell that they were really worried that I was like this Hollywood actress because the women in Hollywood were casual about commitment, marriage and divorce. She goes, I did everything I could to assure them that if Mark was game, I was in this relationship for the long haul. This is day four of their first date. I wonder if they were like immediately put at ease by her presence. They were like Hollywood, so glamorous, so unattainable. Oh, her? Okay. (laughs) This is one of my favorite parts about their love story. He's doing a concert and he has her stand over in this one corner because he wants to be able to look at her when he sings. And there's this song that they both love that he wrote called A Thousand Times. The lyrics are, I've felt so strong for you ever since the day you caught my eyes. And I can't help but wonder if my life is turning upside down this time. She says, I knew he didn't write them for me when we met because the song already existed when they met. So obviously not. But she says she later found out that he had actually written the song about the type of woman he hoped to spend his life with. What kind of crock of shit is that? 
That's so embarrassing to be like, oh, he wrote this beautiful love song. And then he said it was retroactively about me. He wrote it just kind of manifesting my presence. (laughs) It works. And she tells him that she's in love with him. So then two months in, it's like July. He's like, what are you doing for Christmas? And she's like, I'm going to be with my family. And he's like, we should be together. And she's like, I don't know. I think we should be with our families. And he like kind of gets pouty about it. And he's like, but what if it's our last Christmas before we're married? And she's like, I don't know, better reason for us to be with our families, I guess. <laughs> she goes, I was hoping he wouldn't propose because I had this hard and fast rule with myself that I had to be dating someone for one year before I got engaged. That way, you know if you really like them. So this is actually a reasonable set of rules, I think. I kind of liked that. Like, I think that that makes sense. I think it makes sense, too. I guess I'm so far from being the kind of person who could get married or engaged within a year that it's like having the rules finish the first set of stairs before you get to the second set of the stairs i'm like i don't even know how you would skip them but okay anyway of course christmas comes along he proposes to her she says yes they end up getting married seven months later so they had dated for seven months and were engaged for seven months and she's like well look at that we were together for a year before we got married And it's like, well, the rule was engaged, but whatever. They get married in Venice. They get ABC family to pay for the whole thing by filming all of the activities and planning and wedding itself. MTV comes to them with an idea for a reality TV show called Newlyweds about the first year of their marriage. Their mom goes, I don't know. Reality TV is so new and untested. I don't know if it's good for two people who have literally never lived together or even met really (laughs) to put their whole first year of marriage on camera. And then she goes, she was right because next they went to Nick and Jessica Lachey and Simpson respectively mm-hmm. and she's like and look what happened to their marriage and I'm like yeah but look what happened to their careers yeah. so I'll pose it to you dear listeners who do you think won sure Jessica got divorced but she's also a billionaire Melissa Joan Hart is presumably married comma happily question mark <laughs> but not a billionaire per se so who won food for thought anyway so her and her husband I guess they start popping out chiclets pretty quickly they have her first son and then they decide that they cannot settle in los angeles she's afraid of la schools and it's expensive and it sucks and so they start just like looking for a new city they are traveling kind of everywhere looking for a place to truly settle they go to nashville they go to long island then they end up in connecticut and they're like oh this is sick and they end up moving to connecticut so that they have more of a family life. But she keeps working in LA. So she has this young family that because they didn't want to have a house in Los Angeles, now she's just away from them. First, she does Dancing with the Stars, which takes her to LA. And then she ends up making Melissa and Joey, which is a spinoff from a ABC Family original film they did called My Fake Fiance. And it's 43 weeks of shooting a year in LA. First, she's doing every five weeks going back to Connecticut for a hiatus. And then she starts going every weekend flying cross country. I just don't know why they live in Connecticut. It sounds like she works full time in California. So finally, they started renting a house in L.A. for season three so that she could see her family. And it's like, why did you move to Connecticut in the first place? It's so bizarre. It really is a strange choice. Like I get that they wanted a suburban life, but I feel like they could have gone like an hour outside of LA and found that in like Ventura County. I think it's because she wanted to be around more Republicans. Yeah, she's a Republican. She mentions at one point during Sabrina the Teenage Witch that she voted for Bob Dole and Hilda and Zelda sat her down and were like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And she was like, it's hard for a little red elephant in L.A. She then has a couple of chapters of page filling bullshit that is some of the worst nonsense I've ever read. Shockingly, not the first party planning 
15 pages we've had to read. Okay. You know how last week I was suggesting that if you ever read a memoir, don't use hashtags because it's not a tweet, it's a memoir. Here's today's lessons from Claire's celebrity memoir, School of Thought. Do not, if you are a rich person, do a chapter about how good you are at planning parties because you're not good at planning parties. You're good at paying for parties. Anybody could come up with extensive shit for parties if they had the money. Yeah, no one is like, oh yeah, I actually am a zillionaire and I wanted to do this fun rent a limo and have this progressive Gilligan's Island themed party for my best friend for literally no reason at all. People just can't spend money on that. Yeah, she's like, I came up with this great idea for a spa party and I got us a harpist and I got us a bartender and then I got us two massage therapists and an acupuncturist and a manicurist. I'm such a good party planner. And it's like, no, you just had money to hire a lot of people. Listening to people talk about the parties they planned in a book is not interesting. Don't write about it. Second of all, I guess she really had a page count to hit because then she does an entire chapter about, did you guys know that Americans love football? Her husband loves football. Oh my God. She's going to explain to you what football is. Did you know men like it? But can I say, I actually am weirded out by how much her husband and her husband's family love football. Like I know that Alabama people are obsessed with the crimson tide or whatever. Everybody's on their periods all the time, but they don't have anything else going on. He had a, I guess not a successful music career, but he wrote a song for Daughtry at one point. Did he not have anything else to do than spend an entire season of the year watching football college football she says their formal dining room is an alabama room i thought it was gonna be like a couple of paragraphs about how much her husband loves football it was like a 15 page chapter every page was a new thing about how much he loved football because it's a character in their relationship she's like when i met him i had to look for inspo about how we could make this work and i found fever pitch i just was shocked that it kept going yeah and then finally the third filler chapter was just about things that she doesn't know how to do and it was about how because she grew up on set she never learned how to do her makeup good which is weird because i think a lot of celebrities have stories about being in the makeup chair so often that they learned how to do it by default i will say she finishes it up with one last chapter about motherhood about how hard it is to be a mom and how difficult it's been becoming a working mom and she has this quote about after she gets married she takes a year off and does philanthropy then after she has the baby shakes a year off and she goes and does one moving and she says being on set again made me realize how incomplete I felt without working for the year I stayed home with Mason. This was confusing to me since I always thought that motherhood would be an entirely satisfying job that would trump all others. Okay. Why would you think that? First of all, it is for some, but I would say the common story on motherhood is it's hard because it's like thankless and it's nice to get out of the house and have something for yourself. One of my big pet peeves is when people go, nobody tells you how hard motherhood is. Cause I was like, I feel like that's all anybody says. All anybody ever talks about is how hard it is. They always say it's really hard, but it's worth it. And I'm always like, prove it. Okay, so this actually gets back to what we were saying earlier. And if you thought we were calling her a bad actress and just being misogynistic or mean, we weren't. We were basing it off of information you did not yet have, which is, so during this period of when she was kind of home with her baby and getting back into acting, she tried to be on both Touched by an Angel and an episode of Law & Order. In both, she was expected to not do like slapstick sitcom comedy. And she almost got kicked off of both sets because she could not do it. She had to have sit down talks with the directors both times where they were like, hey, we don't know what you're doing, but you're going to have to try to emote. This is actually acting. But to not be able to pull off Law and Order, that's like everybody's first acting job. They will literally pull someone out of a Starbucks and be like, I'm sorry, you accidentally stood too close to this set that we're shooting on. And we really need someone to be an axe murderer right now (laughs) or a crafty teacher or a bank robber. I was young when Touched by an Angel was on, but I think even at seven knowing it was like a hacky cheesy show it was not subtle nuanced winter's bone acting she can do sitcoms she can do holiday movies 
and anything else. She's just like, for the love of God, you want me to not look directly into the camera and make a goofy face? I don't understand what you mean. What is acting if not (laughs) looking at you and saying, my cat won't shut up? (laughs) I actually really liked this chapter because she was so honest. She says, I'm not sure why I'm not the super mom the other women in my family, like my mom and sister Liz, seem to be. If anything, I'm proof that intuitive parenting skills aren't inherited. I don't know how to manage their time and why they are so good at outsmarting their wily little ones. And then she tells all these stories about times she couldn't get her kids to behave or she... She's such a sucker. Anytime they cry, she doesn't know how to discipline them. And then she also talks about how being a celebrity, you automatically basically become an influencer the second you become a mom. And a lot of celebrity women have turned being a mom into a second career wind. And she was given this opportunity by Pampers to become a Pampers spokesperson, mommy blogger. And she's like, I could not potty train my child. And then she went on to do this thing that I actually really disagreed with. She told the story about cutting. And I'm sorry to tell this because I really don't want to talk about this. Okay. I feel like I have to because I started it. Oh, God. Because I have something to say, ultimately. Can we, like, sum it up in a different way? Essentially, there is a potty training mishap that ends in her baby pooping all over the bathroom and then running around in it crying. Just, like, turning circles in his own feces. I can't believe you said feces. We are not, like, a poop podcast. We're really not people who love scat. But I do want to say Melissa Joan Hart was like, I didn't know if I should cry and feel guilty or take a video to send it to my friends. And I just want to say... I don't know what hormone it is in mothers that make them think that any of their friends want to see a video of their child running around in its own goddamn poop. (laughs) That is not a video you need to send to anybody. It is truly not even something you should have written in this book. (laughs) Famously joke about abortions, 9-11, everything is fair game. And as soon as you mention poo, I'm like, bitch, too far. So I want to talk about this mothering chapter because I do think it's an interesting insight into the rest of the book, which is so protective of her family. And it's not Priyanka Chopra-ish in that everything is a positive spin that helped her become stronger. But I do think it's the situation where she's like, I was super happy with my childhood and I was trying my best. And then you look at what was actually going on and you're like, oh, this was not great. Yeah. I think the fact that she is so vulnerable and willing to be self-deprecating and hard on herself as a mother, but then in the early chapters protecting her family so much really shows like who this book was out to protect. It's not that she won't be honest about her mistakes. It's that she is protecting them first and foremost. Yeah. Now that you say that, I actually find it really interesting that she talks about how being nurturing isn't a natural instinct of hers because she has spent her entire life nurturing her entire family. And this book itself is nurturing her relationship with her parents in a really specific way. I feel like she doesn't see herself as a nurturer. She sees herself as a provider. Okay. Maybe. And that's why she like left her kids for 43 weeks. She like bought them this house in Connecticut and then went to LA to work for a year, which is a bizarre choice. I think when you started out in LA, it's like you moved your kids to the other side of the country. She was her mom's best friend and confidant Mm -hmm. when her mom was going through a divorce. Yeah. She was providing for the family. She was probably bought them that townhouse, but she was also there for her. And she says she didn't have the emotional capacity at that time. She mentions being too selfish to truly, truly be there for her mom emotionally And it's like, that is not selfish. And the fact that you think it is means that you were being asked for way too much. Yeah, no, I agree. The fact that she will air her own dirty laundry in this chapter, but then she'll protect her parents. But then when it's her mom versus her husband, she'll throw her mom under the bus. Like there's a real pecking order of who she's willing to expose. Yeah. And she's at the bottom of it. Yeah. And her husband's at the top, which I think is important because you feel like he's not great. 
I don't feel like he's great because I have a real nose for when people love to talk about the relatability of their relationships and they love to be like, we fight all the time. But then the way they talk about it, I'm like, no, wait, you guys do fight all the time. And that's also not normal. It's a very Dax Shepard, Kristen Bell vibe where they're like, listen, we are not some perfect idealistic couple. Okay. We fight just like everybody else. We wire bombs into each other's nights, <laughs> just like every other couple out there. I tried to light her hair on fire last night. We're just like you. Okay. Every single one of us goes through a phase where we look at our wife in her deep, seedy, dead eyes. And we think, I wish you were fucking dead. But thank you for my children. (laughs) I think it's a really hard balance to strike to not seem perfect and like you're making everything look all shiny and beautiful, but then to also tell the truth without throwing anybody under the bus. But the way she talks about them fighting over ketchup and fighting over everything and how hard it was for him when she was working across the country, when it's like, literally, what else was he fucking doing? She like bought a record label for him to try and help his music career get off the ground and it just like was too much work because he was too bad at music she keeps saying i love my rock star husband and i'm like every time you say that i become absolutely more convinced that he is a failure she also emphasizes the fact that they'll never get divorced because the wilkerson's do not divorce and she's irish catholic and they talk about all these random things that she like kind of didn't know about him before they get married i think she gives up a lot to make their relationship work and i don't think that he provides the same because i don't think he had anything to give up So she tries to wrap up this book in a way that I find really interesting because instead of getting any sort of realization or self-actualization or learning, she just says things that I think are insane. She goes, people ask her, how did you end up so normal? I'm from a sane family, was raised to appreciate hard work and be responsible with money, looked up to grounded role models and married a guy with strong values. I mean, she is not from a sane family. She's from a family that sold her to a magazine at the age of three years old. She also wasn't given good values with money. She just wasn't given any of her own money. It's easy not to spend anything when you're not told where it is. This last chapter is called Abnormally Normal. It touches on the tension we have also felt in a more catty way that she also recognizes that for whatever reason, she's a huge part of television culture, but she was never part of celebrity culture. Yes. Melissa Joan Hart was never that famous, but Sabrina, Clarissa are like iconic characters that she will always be the face of. She tells a story joking about how her name doesn't really get her in anywhere and she'll let her friends use it to see if they can skip the line and that she's Cake Factory. But one time she used it at a club and not only did they not get to skip the line, they were actually sent to the back of the line. We talk a lot about all those weird call-outs that feel a little off. I think that is her clawing at trying to come up with something relevant And it's like mean-spirited, but not from within her, from this part of her that's trying to mimic what she thinks will get press. Because I think she truly also does not know why she was never Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, that section where she talks about how parallel their lives and careers were. She like genuinely doesn't get what the difference is. Mm -hmm. And the difference isn't something you can point to. When we used to do our Britney Spears podcast, we would talk all the time about just an X factor. Some people just have this sparkle within them and some people kind of don't and she just doesn't I mean I think it's a really interesting story about somebody who is like working really hard to make everything perfect for everybody else even at the end she's throwing herself under the bus to be like my mom was such a better mom than me we were talking about why is she still working on Melissa and Joey I have to wonder if part of it is because she says me and my mother are first and foremost friends and then mother daughter and then business partner I wonder if part of why she's still working is to keep that relationship with her mom 
I wonder yeah. if she's afraid of telling her mom, no, I'm done. Because I was thinking about it. They also had that Netflix Sabrina spinoff. So they must own the rights to that. Oh my God. Like there's still money churning in. They must be making good money. And so for her to be doing Melissa and Joey, I do wonder what driving factor is there. And I was also thinking about like why she was so successful as a child actress. Because being a child actor is different than being an adult actor. And I think first and foremost, what you have to be as a child is earnest, earnest, malleable, willing to work and well-behaved. And that story of her being four years old and realizing that if she said she had a tummy ache, Bill Cosby would kick her off set. So never again did she ever speak up. That is what got her to the top of child acting. She's right. not a good actress. You know the old phrase, well-behaved women rarely make history, but they do make great child actors. <laughs> <laughs> so what are your final takes on Melissa Joan Hart and this book? My final take on Melissa Joan Hart is that I will always hold Sabrina, the teenage witch, so close to my heart. But I didn't know very much about Melissa Joan Hart before, and I don't like her that much now. I just don't think there's a lot to know. I don't think there's that much to know. I don't agree with the fact that when she is given a platform, I don't think she uses it positively. I think people forget that she exists, and then she only kind of crops up to do something that is not something that I personally agree with. So that's why I just kind of want to keep her as Sabrina. How do you feel about Melissa Joan Hart? I feel like this answered a lot of questions that I didn't know I had. Like when I was like, oh, Melissa Joan Hart has a book. I was like, what does she have to say? And the answer is nothing. But then more (laughs) than that, the answer is, why did I already know that she didn't have anything to say? Maybe because she's been saying it and you keep forgetting it. I did think it was an interesting character portrayal of somebody, a rare type of child actor who never lashes out, but because that in itself is their trauma. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I mean, I wish her the best. I hope that she gets to spend more time with her family and, you know, I hope she's happy. All right, you guys, we love you so freaking much. Thank you for a year. As always, we've got the Patreon. We're going to do like a run through history of all the big memoir moments and the ways they connect and the extended memoir universe. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, join the wormhole on Facebook to connect with your other squirmy wormies. And as always, thank you guys so much. We love you. As always, I love you so fucking much. And we'll see you next year. Which is next week, just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next week. Okay, bye. bye.